You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is people will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously. It doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. To demonstrate my love and dedication to hockey and my commitment to the game. Okay, so here's how the podcast today is going to work, folks. Elliot and I are going to briefly talk about the Pierre-Luc Dubois-Patrick Line trade that we saw over the weekend. Throw Jack Roslovic in there, of course. He's a big part of it in the third-round pick. Uh, but you're going to hear from Jarmo Kekalainen, general manager of the Blue Jackets, here in a couple of seconds. After the interview, Elliot's got lots of juicy bits of news you're going to want to stay tuned for. Uh, so it's going to be a lot about Columbus, a lot about Winnipeg, a whole lot of Yarmo Kekalainen, and then some news. That's the deal. Before we get to Yarmo, though, Elliot, take us through your Friday and take us into your Saturday morning as well. Friday night was a wild one as, you know, the trade rumors really heated up. It looked like these two sides were going to do it. And then other teams jumped in. Boom, here's Anaheim. Boom, here's Montreal. Take us through your Friday, Saturday. So, Jeff, Thursday night, I'm just looking back at the app to see what games were going on Thursday night because I'm trying to remember what I was watching. Oh, Jets Senators. That was the game I was watching early because, by the way, I have to tell you early on, I've never felt more disconnected with three quarters of the league. Like, it's almost like we're covering a seven-team league up here. Because we're doing so much Scotia North. Yeah, and I don't like this feeling, actually. I'll tell you, I I don't like feeling so cut off with the rest of the league, but, you know, that's a conversation for another time. But I was watching Ottawa-Winnipeg, and then all of a sudden, you see, oh, okay, Dubois is not playing. And your reaction is, here we go. We all knew this was going to happen. Here we go. And then, you know, I, I switched on the app to look at the game and I watch, you know, you go to NHL.com, you check the shift chart, you go look at his shifts and, and you're sitting there and you're going, oh my goodness. And you know how it goes on Twitter. Everybody starts ripping Tortorella because it's kind of the easy thing to do. Yeah. Like I sent that clip to people I know don't like Tortorella mm-hmm. and they looked at it and they said, can't blame him for this one. And I, the thing that to me was the most amazing was the Tyler Johnson thing. He just allowed himself to be pushed off the puck. And, you know, we talked about this the other day uh, when we did our last podcast. So the one thing we realized on Friday was that I think on Thursday night, there was a conversation between Kekalainen and the agent for Dubois. It was Pat Brisson. And I think they pretty much knew that it was over that, Columbus was going to do its once around the league and say, okay, here's our deal and make it. 
And they knew, and we'll talk to Kekalainen about this, they knew that Winnipeg's offer was there. He told us something about the offer that I didn't know before, that it had to be a two-for-one. It was not going to be a one-for-one. You'll hear more about that in the interview. But he knew that that was there, that Winnipeg was in his hip pocket, just as the Jets knew Columbus was in their hip pocket. And I think he went around and he said, okay, what does everybody else have? What's everybody else willing to do? And, you know, I heard Calgary up their offer, but it wasn't what Columbus wanted. Montreal, you know, my belief, Jeff, is that before the season, I think the Canadians might have would have considered Suzuki, at least thought about it. But the way he's played now that the season's underway, yeah. the Canadians just decided they couldn't do that. Anaheim was in there. They upped their offer. I've heard it did not include either Zigris or Drysdale. That neither one, Anaheim was not willing to give up either one of those players. And I just think that they reached a point where they realized that the best offer they were going to get is Winnipeg's. And I think in a lot of ways, that deal was done on Friday night. I understand that Winnipeg had to do some final due diligence. And I think it was just medical records just to make sure everything was okay. And once that was done on Saturday morning, the Jets made the deal. But I think everybody knew on Friday night that that was going to be the deal. It was just a matter of, you know, it wasn't done until it was done then. So that's kind of where it all went. So Ron McLean really did his best on Saturday to try to draw out of Pierre-Luc Dubois what exactly happened. What was the conflict? What was the issue? Or what were the issues? And Dubois went, you know, full matrix and dodged and weaved and ducked and pretzeled um, his way around, not exactly saying what the problem or problems were. Okay, so you mentioned you didn't have control necessarily where you'd end up, but uh, you did have a little bit of leverage in the sense of, I want to trade. Everybody wants the answer. Why, when did you know, uh, Pierre-Luc, that you, you had to leave Columbus? Can you, can you give us the answer that we've never really had, why you wanted out? I said since the start of that, I'm not going to go into detail, and, and, and I won't, but I, I, I can say, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a process. It was thinking about a long time. It wasn't um, overnight. It wasn't, you know, I just woke up one morning, and, and, and it was a decision to make. It was something that, that I, I thought about, and, you know, as, as the negotiations were going, you know, obviously you don't take anything personally, but as they go longer and longer, you can you kind of start to think about stuff in situations. And, you know, at some point, I, I, I thought, I mean, uh, you know, there's Pierre-Luc Dubois, the hockey player, and there's Pierre-Luc Dubois, the, the human. And I wanted to stay true to myself, to my teammates. I knew that if it was, you know, a longer deal that deep down I, I, I wanted, I would have wanted this to happen. Um, so I, I wanted, you know, to be real myself, be real to my teammates and everybody. Um, I know, you know, some people weren't happy about it, and, and I get that. Um, but I'm extremely grateful for, for everything that Columbus, the fans of the city, um, my teammates and the staff have done for me. But I do find it interesting that he talked a lot about being true to himself. There was a lot of references mm -hmm. to being true to himself. And that's a very personal thing to say. That could mean a number of different things. Personal, political, religious, don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we're ever going to, unless he decides to disclose, 
find out where the disconnect happened or if it was even one specific moment or if it was an accumulation of things. I just don't know. There's probably only a handful of people who do. But I, I think that there was enough in that interview with Ron that you know leads you to conclude that what we discussed last podcast, which is there's more to this story than what meets the eye is accurate. We don't know exactly what it was, but was that not Pierre-Luc Dubois at least confirming in your mind that there was more than just, ah, you know what? The coach barked at me and I don't like him. Yeah, there's no question that's true. I think there's a lot to unpack here and only he can answer those questions. I think one of the reasons he answered the way it was is because Columbus had tried to change his mind and he said, no, I'm staying true to what I believe, and that is that I want to go elsewhere. I think that's part of it. There's a lot of theories here from wanting to play on a bigger stage. And when I said that, because it's gotten a lot of traction, people are like, oh, well, Winnipeg, that's a joke. It's the smallest market in the league. The one thing, this is not me taking shots at Columbus in any way, shape, or form. But the one thing about Winnipeg is hockey really matters there. And I think for some people, that's important. And I could see for Dubois that being really important. So it's not necessarily the size of the market. It can also be how much does it matter there. And in Winnipeg, it matters a ton. And Yarmo goes into a passionate defense of Columbus in our podcast in the interview coming up. And, you know, I agree with him. I really like it there. But, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't that way for Dubois. Another theory that's been given to me is that, you know, the way Columbus does business also will be addressed in our interview. You know, I believe Columbus was willing to go eight times eight for Dubois. I think they were going to make him the wealthiest player in the history of the franchise. So I don't think you know, that was a problem here. I do wonder if one of the things Dubois was concerned about long-term was that if he signed for, say, eight years, other players on the team might leave as free agents. He's seen it happen to Panarin. He's seen it happen to Bobrovsky. It's possible he was concerned about that. And I could see him not saying that, Jeff, because you know, it throws other players out there and some people just won't do that. That's fine with me. But I think at the end of the day, he made it very clear that whatever the reason was, he wasn't going to change his mind. And the more I thought about it, you know, what I kind of thought of was James Harden. You know, James Harden efforted his way out of Houston. Mm -hmm. He made the situation untenable. And Houston said, that's it. We're doing it. We can't allow this anymore. And Dubois did the same thing. He made the situation untenable. Like, there's no doubt for me now that after watching John Tortorella on Friday and the way he talked, that he knew it was over. And the Blue Jackets, just like the Houston Rockets with James Harden, the Columbus Blue Jackets were with Dubois. And there's been a lot of theories too about is there a personal reason that Dubois, you know, didn't want to be in Columbus, whether it was something with his teammates or whatever. 
that answer, I mean, it leaves a lot of things open to interpretation. And until he decides to say what it is, everyone's just going to keep guessing. Either that or Jeff, they're just going to move on and say it's over. There's no point in talking about it anymore. What do you think people do with this? They just give up the hunt? Yeah, not in, <laughs> not in the Twitter era. Let me introduce you to Twitter sometime. Uh, we do have the same questions as well about uh, Patrick Line and, and where it went south uh, with him and the Winnipeg Jets. We'll pause that conversation because you did reference what, uh, what Yarmo Kekalainen does discuss in this interview. So let's get right to it so people can listen to it. This is Yarmo Kekalainen, general manager, pulling off the big deal with Kevin Sheveldayoff over the weekend on 31 Thoughts, the podcast, brought to you by the GMC Sierra AT4. Always good when a major newsmaker joins the podcast. He is Yarmo Kekalainen, general manager of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, Yarmo, thanks so much for doing this. And I'm always curious about how deals come together and maybe more specifically when deals end. You know, we know that there are other teams out there obviously interested uh, in Pierre-Luc Dubois. In your mind, when was this trade over? Like at what point did you say, okay, I'm done. He's going to the Winnipeg Jets. Well, you got to do your due diligence around the league and see what the interest level is and what type of options we would have available. And we did that and, and we rank them in order. And you might make have to make a couple rounds of calls just to make sure that, that everybody who's interested got their opportunity to give it their best shot. And we did that as well. So it took a little while, but, um, you know, we came to the conclusion there after the last game that Dubois played that we want to do this sooner rather than later. So... We were pretty busy on Friday and working on that. And then Saturday morning, we um, we were ready. And and now we have uh, Patrick Klein and Jack Roslovic here. One thing that became clear to us on the outside is that you and Kevin Sheveldayoff had discussed this for a while, that you kind of both knew that if you wanted to do this, there was going to be the opportunity to do it. I'm curious, Yermo, how long had you guys known that you were each other's potential trade partners if you needed to be? Yeah, it, it, we, we had a good dialogue for a while, and this was probably the best match right from the start. But as I said, we had to uh, do our due diligence and make sure that we've done our homework on every opportunity that might be out there. And, and after we had done that, we... Uh, returned to talks with Winnipeg several times and and wanted to make sure that all parts of the trade work for us as far as the cap goes. There's some cash involved there and other um, parts of the deal that we had to iron out. And once we uh, cleared those hurdles, we were ready to pull the trigger on both sides. Can you describe what it was like Thursday night for us? I know what a incredibly competitive person you are at a lot of things. What was it like watching that? And can you talk about your discussions after the game that night internally? Well, internal talks are always internal talks for me, and I'm very serious about that. But, you know, there are certain values that, that um, you know, we have within our, our organization and within our team and in our locker room. And, 
And uh, we have a very demanding head coach who will, who will never compromise those values. I would never want him to compromise those values. And, and I, I support him 100% when he, uh, when he does his coaching, uh, enforcing those values. And um, it came to a point where, where that wasn't the level of commitment to those values that was given by Pierre-Luc Dubois. And that's why he was benched. And I support the coach 100% on, on that decision. And, and um, like I said, after that, I think there was a little more urgency on our part to get this done. And we're happy to move on now with uh, two players that we like a lot. Even if the trade hadn't occurred on Saturday morning, to the organization, had Pierre-Luc Dubois played his last game with the Blue Jackets? And what I'm sort of getting at is, was there any way that he would have played Saturday afternoon? No. No, he wasn't going to play Saturday. And, but after that, it's the coach's decision on on um, how he wants to handle the player. And, you know, there's no need to really get into that. But uh, there's always uh, second chances and opportunities to redeem yourself as a player if you make a mistake or don't live up to the values that, that we hold strong here. And But you have to show it through your hard work in practice and, and how you conduct your business in, in the locker room and, and within the team, and and um, I'm sure then our coach will always give every player a, a second chance or an opportunity to show that that uh, he's ready to live up to the uh, expectations and the values. You know, one of the things I'm curious about because I can remember we all can specifically at the Buffalo draft when when Winnipeg took line A two and mm-hmm. uh, and you surprised everybody, uh, everybody except your own organization, I should add, uh, by selecting Pierre Luc Dubois number three. Knowing how much you value uh, Patrick Line with your team now, did you try to move up to get Line A at two? Were there any discussions about that at all at that point? Absolutely, absolutely. We tried like hell to move up from three and, and uh, weren't successful. And at the time, we uh, felt like we took the next best player and he's turned out to be a good NHL player. And, you know, the funny part about people talk about the value of position at center and, and wing. And, and uh, you know, I, I agree with all, all of that. But at the same time, when we took Pierre-Luc Dubois, we'd played six months of center the previous year in junior. And, you know, the experts told us that he can't play center. He's a wing. Well, he turned out to be a pretty good center in this league. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. how times evolve sometimes. And, and uh, you know, we have some guys this year that have stepped up to the plate and gotten the opportunity to play a different position, like Alexander Texier. We drafted him as a center, but as a young player, you want to bring him in mm-hmm. slowly and make sure that they're, they're uh, up to the task, which is the most demanding position in, in forward on the forward side because of the defensive uh, responsibilities and, He's played great for us so far at center. Whether he's ready to do it full-time through the whole season, we'll see. But when we drafted him, we saw a center in him. And he played center growing up and, and in France and, and in Finland. But uh, because of the defensive responsibilities, he was sometimes moved to the wing as well. And he's been a wing pretty much the whole time so far with us. But this year, he's played center now and he's played great for us. So. That's how we try to evaluate players too, is that, you know, okay, they might be playing wing now, but can they play center? And when Jack Roslovic, who I see as a big part of this whole deal, is uh, was drafted, he was drafted as a center and, and he's played center and wing in the National Hockey League for his career. But, uh, you know, Winnipeg has a very strong forward group and and uh, there's only so so much of opportunity to play in the top lines as a center. There's only two of them if you, if you take top two lines. 
And, uh, you know, sometimes you could uh, fall behind somebody that's got more experience and, and is playing better at the time. But an opportunity is a wonderful thing. And, and we've seen that so many times in this league where we're um, all of a sudden when you get an opportunity, um, you take off with it and never look back. I can tell you a story about Pierre-Luc Dubois. He was, uh, he was playing on the wing with us and wasn't playing very well. And, and uh, then all of a sudden, Coach Tortorella, and I had had a lot of discussions about it. He moved moved him to a center and put him with uh, Artemi Panarin, and he took off and played great, and uh, has played center ever since. So you know, that's why I think they create real opportunities for young players to show what they can do. And if they're not ready for it, then fine. But but until you uh, give them that opportunity, then uh, it's hard to evaluate. So you know, that's a big part of our long term decisions too. When we uh, construct our roster and, and look forward to uh, not only this year, but next year is that who do we sign? Who do we re-sign? Is there enough opportunity for that guy? Is there enough opportunity for in that position for that guy who we see as a, as a center or a wing? So um, it's an interesting process. What would it have cost you to move up one spot at that draft? <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you one thing. I, I am never going to talk about any of the uh, the private talks that I have with the general managers in this league. I'm never going to put any, any of my colleagues in a bad spot by saying that they offered this guy or I offered that guy or I offered this and that to move up or they offered so-and-so for, for this player. So that's one thing I take very seriously. That's a very boring answer, I have to tell okay, you. Okay, hang on. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me continue this quick fishing trip here, Yarmo. Did, <laughs> did you ever think you were close? No. No. They were not moving the pick. The one thing that I, I have thought about here a bit is that, you know, remembering that draft, when it was coming down, everybody was talking the top three was Matthews, Line, Pugliarvi, who, by the way, is looking like a totally different player, happily for him. But you you took a chance, and Jeff and I and your fans know you, that you're confident and you believe in yourself. But at the time, it was a risk. And I've wondered if that disappointed you more throughout this process at all, Yarmo, that you put yourself out there and you turned out to be right and it didn't work out long-term. Well, I don't, I want to take the best player available and, and I live by the, uh, the principle that the biggest risk in life is not to take any. And, and um, you know, I, I have tremendous faith in our scouting staff. I, I think they do a great job. They've done a great job for us. And, and you know, that's what we're always going to make our decisions based on is what their list's looking like. We're not going to, Make them because of outside pressure, or with all due respect, what the uh, what the experts are saying, how the list should be. Mm-hmm. We look at our list, and uh, those guys have worked on it all year long, watching players over and over and over again, doing all their background checking and and uh, research on them, and then they put them in order, and that's the order we're going to go by, and, and it's very very simple. How crucial is it now um, for you, Yarmo, to start to build? Uh, and you've already commented on this, but if you could expand to build a long-term relationship with Patrick Laine in Columbus. Yeah, I, I think we've already started. We had a really good conversation with Patrick and you know he, he's looking forward to the same goal and, as we have, which is to build a long-term relationship. But uh, you know, you, you have these young players for, uh, you have their rights for seven years and they've committed to that and agreed to that through CBA and you know, after that, if they so decide they can be unrestricted free agents, then I respect that right. Just as I 
much as I, I hold on to the right that we have to have their rights for a certain amount of time or a certain age mm-hmm. and uh, expect a full commitment through that time. But, um, yeah, I see a player that uh, is still just tapping into his potential. I, I think he's uh, become a lot more 200-foot player than perhaps he was when he started in this league. But I've never had any doubts about his competitiveness and willingness to learn to become a better player and and his work ethic. And I have a pretty good network of people that I can talk to from who've known him since he was a kid. And and we've done our research for his time in Winnipeg as well. So he, he wants to uh, have a great career. He wants to be the best. And, and hopefully he's with us for a long time. You know, I am curious what, you know, your general manager eyes see in Patrick Line. Elliot and I have talked about, you know, this idea that perhaps nobody in the NHL can score from distance quite like Patrick Line. No one shoots from farther away with more accuracy, and we all know how hard the shot is. What do you see in Patrick Line? Well, I see a great passer. That, you know, everybody knows a blind scout can tell you that he's got a great shot, but I, you know, I've seen seen him make unbelievable passes through the seam in the power play. Uh, he's very creative offensively, sees the ice very well. He's also a big, big body that I think that he can can hang on to pucks and and do even a better job at that just by sticking this his arse out and protecting the puck and and uh, you know that's when he's at his best when he has the puck and um, you know that's the one growth area I'm sure that Coach Tortorella is going to concentrate on is how, how do we get you the puck more? And that's why you need that 200-foot game is that the best players in the game, they, when they, as soon as they lose the puck, they're, they're hungry to get it back because that's what they want. They want to be on the puck. And, you know, I always talk about uh, Pavel Datsyuk, for example, that how great he was at, at that and, and what a magician he was with the puck. But when he lost the puck, you could never feel like you were out of danger with him. He'd come back and put that back pressure on you and lift your stick and go the other way. And that's become a real good 200 foot player. What is Roslovic's ceiling? How good is he? Well, we believe he's a big part of this. And mm-hmm. we were adamant right from the start with the talks with Winnipeg that we wanted both of these players in the deal. And, and it wasn't happening one for one. And Jack's been on our radar for a long time, ever since the draft and, and every every conversation, basically, probably to a point where he was sick of me, I've asked about uh, Roslovic from Chevy. And so I wanted to make sure that in this deal now we get him as well. We've seen him as a center growing up. We believe he's a center and can play center. And he's got great speed, great skills, good hockey sense, sees the ice. A lot of those things that uh, that we need right now. And, and he's going to get a great opportunity here. I have three more for you, so we'll go in order here. Number one, did you ever feel that you got a satisfactory explanation on why Dubois wanted it to go this way? No, and I don't really even want to answer that question any further because that's something that uh, he should tell people if he wants to. And mm-hmm. But the one thing I know that there's a misconception there that there's something wrong with Columbus. This is a great city. I mean, I could live here for the rest of my life. I'm from Finland. You know, it's safe. It's got everything you need. It's it's a beautiful city, and we got great fans. We got a great building, and great ownership here. And people are excited about hockey. And then again, it can give you the small city uh, safe feeling when you when you go into the suburbs where we live, for example, with great schools and and uh, some of the best golf courses in the United States. If you love that in the off season, so 
I can't say enough about Columbus, how great it is here. And, and me and my wife have talked about it many times that we could easily live here for the rest of our lives. And, and uh, you know, I'd still go to Finland in the summertime to my cottage, but um, this is a great place to live. And I, I hate to see this misconception there that's for somehow people want out of Columbus because uh, it's not a great city. It's totally wrong. You know, as I said, if you become a UFA and you want to go somewhere else, if you want to live in New York, then well, we're not New York. Or if you want to live on the ocean, then you know, sorry, but that's something that we can't offer. But we can offer anything that a professional hockey player needs from things that I mentioned. People are passionate about hockey here, and, and it's not just a great hockey city. It's a great sports city when you look at Ohio State and Major League Soccer champions here. and, and it's, mm -hmm. it's just a booming city where you can just see that you know, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. And they're building everywhere here and it's better and better. Well, that leads me to my second question, which is probably the toughest question I have for you, Yarmo. And that is that one of the theories about this is that there's a certain way that Columbus does business, that you guys are hard to negotiate with, that you've got a very demanding coach, that your organization is demanding in a lot of different ways. And that is what lead some people to want to leave? A, do you believe that? And B, do you feel there needs to be a change in the way the Blue Jackets do business? No, I don't feel that way at all. We have certain rights in the CBA. And as I said, when you become a UFA, you know what they tell me when they become UFA? Here's here's what I want for money or I'll leave. So, you know, when we, when we have the rights and, and you don't have arbitration rights, for example, we're going to say, well, we think this is a fair contract. Here's why. Here are the comparables, and uh, you know, let's let's agree on a deal. We're we're never going to try to squeeze you and, and put an unfair offer on the table. Sometimes negotiations can get a little hard if the other side's unreasonable. But I don't think we've ever been unreasonable. I think the contract, once he finally wanted to sign with Pierre Luc Dubois, took me and Pat Brisson ten minutes to get done. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we just signed Oliver Bjorkstrand to an extension, and, and he's very very happy about it. And, player wants to leave for other reasons, then there's nothing we can do. We offered Artemi Panarin one of the, the biggest contracts in the entire league. Is We felt that he's worth it and he's one of the best players in the league, and I think he is. Once you've earned it, we're going to pay. But we'll also have a cap to manage, and, and now it's going to be flat for a while. So if we just uh, hand out money here in contracts just because we want to be good guys, then you know maybe the players will like us more or our negotiations more, but we're going to be you know losing players and not being able to keep our team together because we would be over the cap. And we don't get any sympathies from the players and agents when they have the right to to ask for whatever they want. We either have to say yes or no when they become UFA. So we got to conduct our business the right way, but you know we always going to try to be fair about it shorthanded on Saturday against the defending Stanley Cup champions who are off to a great start this year, your players gave you the best game of their season after you made that trade. To me, we all talk, especially sports people, it's a lot of hot air, but actions speak. And the way your team went out on Saturday and played, that said to me was validation of the move that you guys had decided to make. Did you look at it that way too? Well, they were able to focus on the right things, which is playing hockey and being a team. And, and uh, you know, that's one of our biggest strengths is that we are a team with a capital 
letters and, and we have a great room. We have really good leadership here and guys love playing for each other and with each other and, and, and going to battle. So that's the way it looked like again on, on Saturday. And, and uh, you know, we, we've always been that way here for the, uh, you know, quite a few years now where we're truly a team. And, and I love that about our guys and, and our room. That's how they approach it. And like I said in the beginning, that there's certain values that we don't compromise and doesn't matter who you are. You have to live by those values that we uh, think very highly of within this organization, within our locker room. And you could see focus and, and joy um, within our team and on Saturday's game. We finally looked like a team and we played great. I'm proud of the guys. Was a wonderful effort uh, and, a, and, a, and a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Columbus, uh, shades of a couple of seasons ago, sticking it to the uh, to the Tampa Bay Lightning in a key game. Uh, Yarmo, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, congratulations on the trade. Best of luck with Line A and Roslovic uh, and the rest of the Blue Jackets organization the rest of the season. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Kitos, Yarmo. Thank you. Hola, Take care now. Well, Elliot, that was Jarmo Kekalainen, general manager of the Columbus Blue Jackets. As a draft geek, uh, a couple of things that stand out there specifically is trying to trade up in 2016 to get number two and the fact that he was not close uh, to getting the number two overall pick and drafting Patrick Laine. What stood out for you in our talk? First of all, I would just like to say to everyone that notice how Jeff says the best answers were questions that he asked, okay? (laughs) I, I, I... I work with a very selfish co-host. I like to promote Jeff's questions. Yeah. He only likes to pat himself on the back. I would like everyone to notice this. Enough of me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while, Elliot? <laughs> Kekalainen was good. Like, there's no question about him. He's a good interview. He doesn't, if you ask him a question, he's going to give you an answer if he wants to. Obviously, he's not going to tell us everything we want to know about what the Jets asked for or personal decisions. Look, like he... He hid nothing. And you always wonder, you know, what are the most passionate answers uh, to these questions? And three things stood out to me. Number one was that he wasn't doing a one-for-one. Roslovic had to be in the deal, uh, which explains why other teams were interested like in Roslovic. Teams like Pittsburgh uh, didn't get him. Number two, his defense of Columbus as a city and a place to live. And number three, his defense of the way they do business as an organization. I think those were kinds of some of the things. He's very passionate talking about those last two things, both the city and the organization. And when you're the general manager of a team, that's probably the way you should be. So when I'm hearing Yarmo talk about and defend Columbus, the city. Mm-hmm. I think to myself, because you know, I mentioned this is not going to be a one for one. Jack Roslovic is going to be part of that deal. I wonder how much, and this is not to disqualify how, you know, how much of a wonderful hockey player Roslovic is. Like he is, like he's skilled, he's fast, like he's he's a real good player. He's like a, a really, how would you phrase it, Elliot? Really strong middle six center for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Like that'll probably end up being his spot. Like he's a really nice player. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that, like how much him involved in the deal is the fact that he's from Columbus that he's the guy we're bringing someone from Columbus home. Like not saying this is all about marketing because it's not, this is a hockey team and you're trying to win games. Is this just a sidebar that we're bringing the local boy home to cement him back in the, the you know, concrete can harden around him back in his hometown. 
I think that you can't do that unless you really believe the person can play. That's why I've prefaced it by saying this guy's a good hockey player. Yes. Just hearing how passionate he is about Columbus, Columbus, Columbus. Yes. And they're bringing Roslovic back here. It's hard not to look at this right now and say that Winnipeg didn't do anything else with Roslovic because they knew that they might need him in this deal. I just wonder how much of this is trying to, and that's why I asked him the question about the long-term relationship. Like right now, if you're Yarmo Kekalainen, and because that story is out there, you, know, you go back to, you know, whether it's Fedorov or Foot or uh, Nash or Panarin, Bobrovsky, Jeff Carter, like there is that history of players that want out. Mm-hmm. The conversation about trying to get a long-term relationship with Line A and bringing the Columbus kid back to Columbus, how much of this is trying to change the story of people leaving Columbus? Well, I'm sure it's probably a lot of it, but they've been successful at getting guys to stay too. You know, Nick Felino stayed. Yep. Cam Atkinson stayed. It's hard not to look at what happened with Dubois and think about the NBA, right? Mm-hmm. It was a very NBA move that he pulled. And Tortorella on Friday talking about how he's given up the X's and O's to Brad Larson and Brad Shaw because he has to manage the young players in the dressing room. Uh, This situation, it's a a younger player, not free agency, wanting out. And and it it falls on the player and how he handles the situation. We've been honest. We've had the meeting. But then it comes down to the play. I know you're going to ask me a lot of questions. Let, let Let me just explain something to you what is my responsibility as a coach of this team for all players. Uh, in fact, I've even given most of the X's and O's to Lars and Shazi because this is an all-consuming job with the athletes, the, di- the different type of athletes we have right now. And, you know, a little bit of the prima donna uh, type stuff that goes on and not waiting your turn for situations on the ice, not waiting your turn in the locker room. My job is, and I think it's a very important one I take very seriously, is to monitor attitude, effort. What type of teammate are you? Uh, will you play under a team concept, etc., uh, etc., etc. Et and I think it's really important with today's athlete that we watch that daily. And I do. I do. And spotlight's on here because of the situation that arose when camp started. I don't think it's a really big deal uh, as far as the spotlight because it doesn't change how I go about that part of it. Uh, He is another player in a 23-man roster that I have to watch. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what you when you were drafted, free agent, fourth line, first line. It does not matter to me. We live and die on our team concept. Uh, We live and die playing as a team. I think about that and I think about how in the NBA there's teams that players want to play for and then everybody else battles, really battles to keep great young players before they become the free agency. And, you know, a lot of cities and markets don't like that. And I think it it hurts the league in many of these cases. Again, as Kekalainen says, If a player wants to go somewhere, that is their right. That is their right. I don't have any problem with that. I just understand if I was a fan in some of these markets, 
I don't know if I'd feel a lot of loyalty to the league if I knew a lot of the star players didn't feel loyalty to my city. And I do think that you've got to be looking at this case in the National Hockey League and saying, okay, is this a one-off in this situation? Or are we headed this way? That's what I was going to ask you. Is this a blueprint for how to get out of town? Well, it worked, right? Quickly, too. Quickly. I'd like to think it's not for me. You know, if I was ever that on, like, we, and again, I don't want to relive this, but, you know, we talked about how, you know, sometimes we really hate our bosses, but I believe you have to show up to work. I would hope I would never do that. I don't like it. But I also understand if you're that unhappy at a workplace that you feel that that's your only recourse. Like, I hope that never happens to me. Like, look, like, how have the young players changed the sport? The thing that Yarmo Kekalainen talked about there, using the power of the CBA against the young players. They have the hammer when they're UFAs. We have the hammer when they don't have, say, Arbrights or they're restricted free agents. And he uses it, and they use it, and they are, as you heard, unapologetic about that. This generation of players has thrown that on its ear. They're getting paid more money sooner than ever. McDavid, the guys in Toronto, Aaron Ekblad, Seth Jones, Aaron Ekblad's deal affected Seth Jones' deal. All of that stuff, Jeff. Mm -hmm. So now what if the next step is, okay, we're doing what James Harden did. I think it's got a lot of people uh, nervous. I'll tell you this. There's one guy I know. I think he could be a really good general manager. And he said to me, he will never be a GM in this league. And I said, really? Why not? He said, I just don't think I am properly equipped to deal with the young player of today. And he said, look, like, I just know myself. This person loves hockey. They're good at their job. They work for a good organization. And they just said, I don't think I'm wired this way. And, you know, it's a challenge. The players are more empowered in all sports than they ever have been before. Younger people feel more empowered with social media than they ever have before. You know, we're all going to have to deal with it. From the Winnipeg point of view, what happened with Line A in Winnipeg? And we've talked plenty about how the leadership group runs the runs the team hard. That may rub against the player like Patrick Line. I've never been one that feels that every hockey player should be treated the exact same way because we're all unique individuals and everybody reacts to things differently. The one criticism of Winnipeg has always been with this group that they run them hard and they expect them to do hockey things one specific way. But where did it break down as far as you've been able to piece together between Line A and the Winnipeg Jets? I thought it was really interesting that Blake Wheeler, he dumped on the narrative that he wasn't a good enough captain to Line A. And we all know that a year ago, Wheeler came out and said, look, I recognize I might be too demanding on certain people and I'm going to change. And he was having none of the he was too demanding online and he said if i have any regrets you know my regrets would be you know some of the frustrations that took place over the years um i've always had a, a real positive relationship with patty every time we've communicated it's been nothing but positive 
never any fighting, never any yelling at each other, more, more so just a player in his mid thirties has 2020 vision looking in the past. Uh, you know, as a young player, I had, I certainly had a, a lot of habits and things I needed to, to overcome. And so, so maybe, you know, I, I could have communicated a little bit better instead of just getting frustrated. That would be the, the extent of it. Um, never once was I hard on Patty far from it. You know, if anything, you know, I, I was very respectful and, and coddled, uh, you know, a teenager and a, and a young 20 year old. So I don't regret that, but I, 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 sometimes I wish, you know, instead of, you know, I, I guess my instinct is to get frustrated and, and, and maybe not say anything. Whereas, you know, maybe if I could have communicated better, you know, maybe it would have made things better, but ultimately I, I don't think that would have happened. And I think it's interesting that, you know, Wheeler basically came out and said, I took my medicine last year and I feel I, I made the change. I think some of it was, for whatever reason, when it wasn't on the power play, Shifley and Wheeler just didn't think that they meshed or the Jets just didn't think that they meshed. I think that Line wanted to be with him. I just don't think Shifley and the Jets believe it worked. And part of it might have been because they felt they needed depth. They can't all be on one line. But I just think they felt as a group it didn't work. And I think Lane was unhappy with that. And, you know, the other thing is, and I always think of Gary Roberts when it comes to this. When Gary Roberts left Calgary and decided he was going to come back and play, he wanted somewhere quiet. And then when he went to Toronto, he said, after being somewhere quiet, he wanted somewhere where it mattered a little bit more. And I think people go through different phases of that in their lives. I wonder if, you know, Pavel Burry thought it was a fishbowl and that was one of the reasons that he wanted out. I wonder if Line just could use something a little quieter Mm -hmm. right now too. Now, I have to tell you, I think in this particular case, Line is another guy who wanted a big number. Again, I have no problem with that. Ask for what you want, see what you get. I do think that what Line wanted, the Jets were never going to do that. And I also think that it might have caused some problems. I think that if you take a look at some of those Jets players, they're very well paid, but not in that stratosphere of like, you know, say 10 or $11 million, what Lonnie would have liked long-term. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Jets were worried about, you know, what that would do. Everybody there is kind of in a group. And if, you know, one player was higher than another that much, I think the Jets were worried about that. I think they were worried about the effect on it, and they made a decision saying, you know what, everybody who's at the top here is going to be in the same kind of area, and we're not going $2 million, $3 million more than that. I, I really think that that was a factor. How much of that dynamic plays itself out on a team? We so seldom focus in on the who's making more and what that does to a room. Uh, we want to pretend that things like jealousy doesn't exist uh, amongst hockey players who in a lot of ways measure themselves based on their compensation. You know, let's say line A turns into a, you know, uh, wins the Rocket Richard three years in a row and is ripping off 55, 60 goals a season and gets himself to that $11 million stratosphere. Would that have upset that room that much, do you think? Well, I think there's a difference between you think he's going to do it and he actually does it. I do think that if it happens when a player does it, 
I think that there's a certain understanding of, well, he's done it. Like you can't just talk about it as an abstract idea, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a difference between that and believing that they're going to do it. Yes, I do believe it comes up. And look, like, hey, I've talked about when the Pagulas got into Buffalo, they had all the right intentions. I really believe it. And the players admitted when they started throwing the big deals out to Leno and Christian Erhoff, it affected their room. And we both live in Toronto. You don't think that the Tavares deal affected their everybody there, all their negotiations? It did. And um, that's just the way life is. These athletes, they're competitive. And they're competitive on the ice. And they're competitive off the ice. But... I think you have to get your team at the right time, Jeff, that they realize they're about to win and they say, okay, we're about to win here. So we have to figure out a way to make this all work. Like the one that's going to be interesting now is going to be Vancouver. So the news breaks on Sunday night that Elias Patterson is going to switch agents. He's going to Pat Brisson and JP Barry who also have Quinn Hughes. So now the two best players on your team are going to be represented by the same guy. And Quinn Hughes is at a place in the CBA where he is not yet eligible for an offer sheet or arbitration. So it would seem that he does not have a ton of leverage. You know, Johnny Goodrow was in that situation. It doesn't seem that he would have a lot of leverage. But, you know, now all of a sudden he's in the same stable as Patterson. You know, how much does that change everything? It's a challenge. How much for people listening to the podcast right now that might not understand that dynamic and may think that everything is done on an individual basis. You know, Elias Patterson may be represented by CAA and Quinn Hughes may be represented by CAA, uh, but that doesn't come up in the discussions with each player specifically. But does it? Like we've seen situations where I'm trying to think of an obvious one. Taylor Hall gets drafted first overall to Edmonton. Yeah. And he's an Aura Group client at that point. And right away, uh, another Aura Group client gets signed in Ben Eager to provide some security, let's just say, around Taylor Hall and his rookie seasons. So I think to pretend that it doesn't happen is folly. But in this situation, what's the dynamic at play here? Like, look at Columbus. We just talked about it. Uh, Brisson had three different blue jackets. He had Waranski. He had Jones. And he had Dubois. And, you know, one thing I'm always careful about is saying, well, if you treat that guy poorly, well, his other client is going to get you back with that guy. Yeah. That's not always true. Like every situation is different, but it can happen. It has been known to happen. Like in baseball, Scott Boris, there were teams that refused to deal with him. They just said, we're not dealing with the guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think that's a great strategy either. I do know there have been some cases where teams have said, okay, we can't deal with this one agent, but we have to. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give it the responsibility to someone else. So they have to do it. Around the draft, there's always stories about, you know, this player is not going to get drafted to this team because that general manager won't do business with that agent. Yeah. I don't think you can live like that. We know GMs that have. Yes. Uh, but you got to hire someone else who can. <laughs> but, you know, like I remember one GM complaining to me about a package deal 
You know, the one that I know people have talked about over the years was Marion Hosa and Thomas Kopechke mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago. Well, there was Salani in Korea with Don Baisley. Yes. That was a package deal. Yes, that was, obviously. Like, the thing is, you just have to be aware of the dynamics there, right? Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, when when news was leaking out over the weekend that Pedersen was switching, there were a lot of guys trying to find out if it was already done or he's actually a free agent. Man, the jockeying was going on. Like, he may be playing poorly to start the year, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean any of these agents thought any less of him. How do you read the Vancouver situation as we dovetail to that? Uh, how do you read the Vancouver situation right now? I know it's torches at the Castle Gate right now, pitchforks and peasants, but geez, it's not looking good for the Vancouver Canucks right now. No, and I do think the identity of the team has changed. I, I think Markstrom and Tanev, not only as players, but as people, I think they were two people that really stabilized them when things went badly. Pedersen was really tight with Markstrom. When he would be upset or needed advice or anything like that, Markstrom was his guy. Same with Hughes and Tanev. I've had a couple of teams tell me that Tanev was a good passer, and obviously he's not as dynamic as Hughes, who is, but at least he could you know, alleviate some of the pressure on Hughes. If Tanev had the puck, he would get it up the ice. You know, Hughes, he's getting killed out there, and without Tanev's passing ability next to him, it's harder for them to get it up when he's getting bombarded and hit. And I think this has affected their personalities, and I think it's affected their play. It's an awful start, and all of a sudden, these games with Ottawa this week, they're huge. Yeah. Huge for Vancouver. You know, where do you think Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver would rather be right now? The Canadian division or the Pacific? Oh, please. They'd rather be in the Pacific. It's not even close. But it's early still, though. There's no such thing as early, Jeff. It's a sprint this year. There's no early. So you've you've made up your mind about all of it right now, then? No, I haven't made up my mind about all of it, but I know the odds. I'm a gambler. I know the odds are getting really long. <laughs> I'm just not that quick to dismiss it. I am still trying in my mind not to overreact to everything that I'm seeing in the first couple of weeks. I know it's a compressed schedule. I know it's only 56 games. I get all that. I'm still trying not to overreact right now. Jeff, there's no room for you in this business <laughs> if you're not going to overreact to things. I got to tell you, I woke up this morning to apologies in my direct messages for uh, from people in Vancouver <laughs> over all the craziness. You know what? For everything that Vancouver's gone through, like two and five to start the season, goal differential of, you know, dash 13, they've allowed 33 goals against so far. Through all of it, Bo Horvat's played some of the best hockey we've ever seen him play. Deadly on the power play. He's been outstanding. And you know what? Now what's going to happen is everyone's going to try to take that play away from them, right? Of course they will. It's funny. Another coach said to me, he said, Claude Julian, he prepares. They couldn't believe that play worked twice. All right. A few more things around the NHL I want to get to. Um, Obligatory joke. Uh, We'll just get it out of the way. Uh, How unfair is it that Arizona gets two teams before Toronto? Elliot, San Jose Sharks. You know, California, California is lifting, and we'll see if it happens. As we're taping it, there are reports that the governor's going to lift their stay-at-home orders. I hope that's good news for those players. 
that they can get home and and see their families and and be at home. I mean, hopefully it's good news in general for the people of California and where everybody thinks that we're going with COVID. But I will be happy for those players when they get to go home. You know who looks pretty good? Brent Burns. Burns walks in and scores! A backhander, top shelf over Kakadin, and the Sharks have reclaimed the lead with less than two minutes to play. Oh my goodness, great players just sometimes make great plays and you have to tip your hat. What a play by Brent Burns. That was a really nifty play, wasn't it? And I had a lot of people, you know, sending me messages and we saw it on Twitter last night too, kind of saying like, make this guy a winger again. Get him off of the blue line. Look at these moves. The big man in tight. Candidate for goal of the year. Like it was a beautiful, to me, the again, the best goal that I've seen this year is still Patrick Laine on that breakaway where he's on a breakaway and he shoots from essentially what the just underneath of the uh, the face-off circles. Like you have to be so flipping confident in your shot that on a breakaway, you're shooting from there and he scores. That to me is the goal of the year. It's not, it may not be as flashy because Liney just comes in and slings it in. Like we've seen it do it a million times, but the, the context makes it. But that Brent Burns play was fantastic. It was. It's not a surprise that he would have the flair that <laughs> he would do it. Um, by the way, Darren Stevens, his Twitter handle is at Shark Stats. He's got really good stuff on on little notes that you wouldn't have expected. He had a really good one the other night on their game on the 20th. He played 31-47, which was the most in a game in Sharks history by defenseman aged 35+. Plus and the most of any NHL defenseman aged 35-plus since Valentine's Day 2015, which was Andre Markov. Ah. However, what Stevens did update was that the scoring crew in St. Louis actually knocked him down, knocked his ice time down 56 seconds, so it went to 30-51. But I thought that was really interesting. Wouldn't Adrian Acoin have had some nights like that? I don't know if he would have had them at that age. Like I do remember a time when he played for the Islanders. It seemed like he was playing oh. 40 minutes a night. Yeah. I just want to go back to what I was saying earlier. I feel really disconnected with the U.S. teams. You do, eh? I go out of my way to make sure that I watch them every single night and follow them. I agree. Like I try. I really do try, but I really hated last week's blog uh, just because I felt I was really disconnected from the American teams. I really have to work on it you know i was talking about it with an agent normally his teams would come into toronto a toronto-based agent and he said you know i'd be going out for dinner you really miss that you know edmonton toronto last wednesday it wasn't the game that everybody hoped it would be thanks to dave Tippett. uh but you go to the morning skate it would be so exciting all that's gone like it's it it feels really weird jeff i'm in a really I feel really disconnected with the league and I don't like the feeling of it, I have to say. Okay, let me help you with the blog this week then right here on the podcast. I have two American thoughts for you. Okay. New Jersey Devils. Jack Hughes is good. That's one thought. And the next thought is, so is Ty Smith. Yes. Ty Smith's been fantastic. He's been really good. Yeah, we talked at the beginning of the of the season about the New Jersey Devils and doing it without uh, Nico Heischer and all the challenges that New Jersey had with Crawford retiring, etc. That goal Sunday night that Jack Hughes scored on Ilya Sorokin, uh, short side power play goal, walks in 
and finds like the tiniest spot to shoot at and nails it. That's the way you want to see the Devils move the puck in the power play. And they feed Jack Hughes. He goes top shelf with a wicked wrist shot. All kinds of time, head up. Look at the screen by Miles Wood in front. And Hughes goes short side upstairs to give the Devils a one nothing lead. First of all, the confidence to take that shot is great. But Ty Smith points in five consecutive games to start the career, six points so far. I don't know. We talk about, you know, the future of this team and we talk a lot about the forwards. How about Ty Smith? Smooth skating, we should mention, Ty Smith. I have to tell you, there were people in that organization who worried they'd miss there. Because he didn't make it right away? That's one of those guys that you look at and you say, listen, there's this guy played four plus in like a handful of games, you know, after his Bantam, but he essentially played four full years in Spokane in the Western Hockey League and was not hurt by it at all. This is a reminder that if a player does not make it at 19 years old or 20 years old, 100%. It's not the end of the world. Same with Kak and Yemi in Montreal. 100%. Like, I do know, like, there were, there were some people there who were worried they'd missed on him. And it just reminds you, you just take your time. Don't be afraid to take your time. Like, look at Pugliarvi. Yeah. Everybody, oh, flop. Now he's coming back and he looks like he's a player. He's playing on McDavid's line. You know, doesn't look as good to start the year as I thought they would is, is Colorado. Oh, why? Just because they've lost to some unlikely teams, most recently the Anaheim Ducks on Sunday evening? LA has given them a lot they can handle. They're just a little slower out of the gate than I thought they would be. You want to come over to the don't panic Jeff side of things, or do you want to stay on the overreact Elliot side of things? No, no, no. I, I, I don't panic with them. I think they're still too good. Yep. You know, that West Division, that's the only division where, where as we tape this podcast on Monday morning, everybody's played the same amount of games. Everybody's played six, so it's all even. There's no reason to panic, Jeff. <laughs> it's all even. And you've got Vegas at 10 points and everybody else from five to eight. Elliot, let's talk about a pretty big piece of news around the NHL today, and that's the NHL ruling on John Chaika. To reset, he resigned on July 24th as general manager and president of hockey operations for the Arizona Coyotes. And Elliot, I think we can all recall the press release that the Coyotes put out, uh, amongst other things, highlights including Chaika has chosen to quit. Alex Marullo, who's the owner of the Arizona Coyotes, extended Chaika in 2019. Uh, it was a four-year deal. And then as the story goes, uh, another NHL team called to talk to John initially was rebuffed and the team said you couldn't talk to them. But then Chaika was allowed to and maintained that it wasn't a job interview. This was the New Jersey Devils, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who own various sports teams. And the position that we all were led to believe it was was to oversee other sports properties. They don't just own the Devils. They also own the 76ers, Crystal Palace, FC, amongst others. Uh, the Coyotes felt duped. Uh, they asked for a ruling and an investigation and a ruling by NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. And that decision came out today, Elliot. Yeah, I haven't seen the full ruling. From what I understand, the league has said that they will only give the ruling to the affected parties and then it released like 
what I would call a summary to everybody else in the league. And basically it said that he's suspended through December 31st of this year. And the quote is Chica engaged in conduct detrimental to the league, breached his obligation to the club and was properly terminated by the club. So there's a lot of questions here. I had heard that he had the permission in writing. So without knowing how the commissioner ruled on that, I don't know what to say. I have to say, I'm not surprised that the league did this. I had some people who thought it was going to be longer. But when you think about it, and someone pointed out to me this morning, yesterday, which was Sunday, for the purposes we're doing this on Monday morning, but Sunday was six months to the day that Chica had left Arizona. So this suspension, by the time it's done, is basically going to be almost 18 months. I think it's going to be 17 months. But, you know, some people said to me that, you know, they thought that it was going to be more, that maybe Bettman might just say that you signed the four-year deal, as you would point out, Jeff, and he had to stay out for the full deal. Mm -hmm. But that's obviously not the case. Now, the biggest question here is what's going to happen with this, in theory, devil's position? As was reported last week, Tom Fitzgerald has a four-year deal, a long-term deal, I should say. I don't know it's four years, a long-term deal but he's only got a one-year deal to be the general manager. You know, they're going really well. They've started really nicely. They've got structure. As you talked about, Hughes is better. I think Lindy Ruff, the the players have seemed to really respond to him. You know, we'll see what happens here. But um, we're doing this uh, about an hour after we got the information. I haven't seen the full ruling as of yet. I'm curious to see what it's going to mean. I'm curious about what the NHL would think when they get all of this information. Like what would, from Gary Bettman's point of view, what would be most concerning in this entire case? The commissioner has fought hard for Arizona. Okay. Yes. So I don't know if prejudice is the right word, but he definitely has a leaning towards Arizona. But whatever happened here, the league doesn't want that. Mm Mm-hmm. It wants its teams and its owners to be protected. Like, who does the commissioner care more about? Owners or general managers? Owners all day long. So one thing he's done here is he's protected his owner. Like any GM who might be thinking about something like this, Mm -hmm. they better have their ducks in a row because the commissioner just suspended them. I think the other thing too is, in some ways it's easy because the other execs, don't like Chica because of what happened with the testing, right? Right. So it's not like anybody is going to stand up and say, this is wrong. No one's going to stand up and say, you know, I'm going to defend them because they're upset at him for the other thing. Again, I don't know what the ruling is here as we do this. I had heard that Chica had everything in writing and I know it got ugly and You know, the one thing I always said was that he was really going to have to win to win. It was going to have to be a clear-cut case Mm -hmm. because you know the league is going to side with the owners on this one generally. And, you know, I'll wait to see what happens, but obviously he didn't convince the commissioner. I wonder, too, what happens to John Chaika out of all of this. And I understand that he made his enemies and – some people around the league weren't exactly thrilled at, at, at how he behaved. But does this, I don't know, maybe radioactive is too strong a term, but does 
Does this bring into doubt, even when his suspension is over, his future in the NHL? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, maybe he says enough. I don't want to do it. Or maybe he comes back to and says, F you, I'm coming back. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he says, look, I learned my lesson and I'm coming back and I'm going to be a different person. You know, he hasn't talked to anyone, right? Right. So it's hard to know what he's thinking exactly. I mean, there's no question it became harder. I think the biggest question here is the one thing we don't know is that what's New Jersey thinking in all of this? Was it a done deal? And was there a promise made that when this is over, you're still going to be our guy? Elliot, I want to get to something you mentioned on headlines on Saturday, and that is the idea of the draft, or should I say the drafts, uh, two drafts next year? Well, I should say that everything here is at the approval of the NHLPA, right? And I had one agent who said to me, it will be very difficult to get the Players Association to agree to this because you're asking for people to give up a year of their careers. And also the relationship between the league and the Players Association, I don't know how good it is right now after their second run through at the CBA uh, in November and December. Look, I think the teams are saying this is unfair. This is ridiculous. And you cannot allow us to have a draft. Mm -hmm. A lot of prospects haven't played very much around the world. The NCAA is still chugging along. The USHL is... Some of them are chugging along overseas. Some are playing, some aren't in Canada. They're not playing right now. And there's real worry that they're ever going to get a chance to play again. The Western Hockey League is really going to try later in February, but not every team might be. The OHL will do something, Elliot. You're closer than this to me. I always concede that. I was just told on the weekend by one of the teams that, Ontario is asking for the same. It's the same thing that's going on with the AHL. They won't let the AHL play in Ontario unless they do the NHL rules. And that's what I heard they're asking of for the OHL teams. And that's a big ask. Mm -hmm. And the NHL teams are really worried about this. And Chris Johnston mentioned the possibility of combines or all-star camps. It's not the same. And Jeff, I believe that the teams are, are saying, The league said, let's get the season started, which they have, and then we'll worry on the draft. And now the teams are saying, this is unfair. We cannot make these decisions this year if we get only a minimum amount of games. So some of the solutions are, number one is maybe you move the draft to December or January. So that way a player can get some time in the NHL next year and you know, you can give them their service time and things like that. That's one solution. But I know there's a couple teams and it came up in at least two teams scouting meetings that why don't we have a big extravaganza, a big hockey extravaganza in June 22 in Montreal. You do the NHL draft, the 02, late 02, 03 draft, and the late 03, 04 draft whether it's three days apart, whether it's a week apart, whether it's two weeks apart, you have everybody in Montreal. And maybe what you do is you do it before and after free agency. So how do you determine order for the first one? The first one is this year's order and the second one is next year's order. 
It's fascinating. Maybe you could do averages. I don't know, but you lock it in. But, you know, so basically they're brainstorming. I mean, the two drafts while everybody's in the same city, holy cow, what an opportunity for newsworthiness. I do understand what the agent said to me, though, is that I wonder if you're going to have to do something with service time Mm -hmm. to make it work for the Players Association. More on this in the weeks to come. And that does sound like an insider's dream, by the way, for you and guys like CJ. Before we uh, split here, and I want to do some stuff, and I think you do as well, a little bit later on this week in our next podcast on the NWHL uh, and their opening weekend in Lake Placid. There's a lot to take out of that weekend from what we saw uh, both on and off the ice and talk a lot about uh, the interim commissioner, Tyler Tominia, who is really an interesting person in the game of hockey right now. I'm curious your thoughts on her. And we have to mention that they colored the ice. We'll do that on the next podcast because that was done purely with you in mind. <laughs> we'll talk about that on the next podcast. Uh, it, it Listen, it looked wonderful. I loved it. I also liked green mixing with blue in the jersey. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about with the NWHL later on this week in our, in our next podcast. Wanted to conclude by getting your thoughts and having a thought or two about George Armstrong, uh, who passed away, one of the great leaders of the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, multiple Stanley Cup champion, Allen Cup champion as a coach, Memorial Cup champion as well, uh, was a longtime scout uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Before that, the Quebec Nordiques. Actually, it was Gord Stelic uh, that brought him back into the Maple Leaf mix, and then he had a 33-year run uh, as a head scout, as Stelic mended the fences between George Armstrong uh, and Harold Ballard. When I say the name George Armstrong to you, Elliot, what comes to your mind? Well, there's a a serious thing and a fun thing. The fun thing is when he took his dentures out at the draft. That was hilarious. I have a denture story with him too, by the way. You want to hear it? Sure. He once, because he used to live near a funeral home in Leaside, and he actually got a dead guy's dentures and replaced Johnny Bauer's dentures with this guy's dentures one day. All the guys on the team <laughs> loved it. Johnny, eh, maybe not so much. Yeah, well, too bad. It's funny. <laughs> when he pushed out his dentures, I, I, I laughed my head off. Yeah, that was great. Uh, what I remember, I mean, obviously the captain of the last Maple Leaf team to win the Stanley Cup, which was before my time. But I remember Punch him lack. I looked for, I have both of his books, uh, Heaven and Hell in the NHL and Hockey is a Battle. And it's not in either of those, but somewhere I know I've read, you know, he basically came up to the Maple Leafs after Bill Barilko died. Yes, true. 1951. And they always said that even though he was new to the team at the time, he played an enormous role in helping them settle down after that tragedy. And I have a book here. It's a book of documents written in blue and white. And it's basically documents about the Maple Leafs and their history. But I didn't know about this, but Detroit, when he was called up from the old Pittsburgh Hornets, Detroit tried to claim that there was a a mistake in the paperwork. Mm -hmm. So he was actually their property now. Mm. And the Leafs and the Red Wings had to appeal to the league as to why Armstrong was theirs. And Montreal was one of the teams that arbitrated it. And obviously the Maple Leafs won. 
But imagine how different it could have been if Detroit, which at that time was the power. Yeah. That was that they were they were at the height of their powers with Gordy Howe would have gotten George Armstrong. Uh, the production line, uh, Red Kelly and George Armstrong. Yeah, that's a that's a powerhouse. That's a complete powerhouse. The um, you mentioned the last captain of the nineteen sixty seven team, and I think the the one you know one of the enduring images that we'll all remember of George Armstrong is scoring the empty net goal. It's the face off. Alan Stanley punched him like as you know liked his defenseman to take face offs to the defensive zone. Whether it was Tim Horton, whether it was Pronovo, like didn't matter. Like your defenseman, you're taking draws. Alan Stanley ties up and smacks the the blade of Bellavo, who complains about interference. It goes to Red Kelly, to Bob Pulford, to George Armstrong, to the empty net. Gump Worsley had been pulled by Toe Blake, and that's going to be one of the enduring images. And that was the over the hill gang. The guys, the, the players that were too old to play hockey anymore, like all these guys in their late 30s that were thinking about winding things down. And even at the end of that season, and the Maple Leafs kept bringing them back on one-year deals, at the end of that, Armstrong said, I'm retired. I'm no good anymore. He said, I played good the last month in the playoffs, but that doesn't erase the last seven months where I was really bad. But the Maple Leafs still protected him in the expansion draft. And hung on to him. And every year he'd say, ah, I can't do this. And every year he would uh, until he finally did hang him up after going through that dance with the Maple Leafs uh, four or five different times. You mentioned books. I want to recommend one as well. If you're interested in his era um, specifically, it's written by Kevin Shea, who for my money is one of the best hockey writers ever. It's called Toronto Maple Leafs Diary of a Dynasty, 1957 to 1967. Great stories of George Armstrong and great stories of that era of Maple Leafs teams as well. Our, uh, our condolences to the family and the friends of George Armstrong. You know, one of the things the solar eclipse, remember that, reminded us is... People will travel to have unique experiences, see things, and be part of events. We all saw how people congregated in areas that had the best view, the best safe view. And they all had to stay somewhere, and many used Airbnb. I want to share something with you I was once told. One of the wisest things you can do when you host an Airbnb is find events in your area and let people in that community know that your place is available for out-of-towners. Many did this with the Eclipse. You can do this as well. Your home could be an Airbnb. Seriously, it doesn't have to be your whole place. I mean, it could be. You'd be surprised what people are looking for when they travel. It's simple and it's really, really smart. You might want to think about it. You could be sitting on a whole new revenue stream. Concerts, sporting events, conferences. People are always on the move. Your home may be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.ca slash host. 